Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Full house today do we have very special guests and it is absolutely my pleasure to welcome our distinguished guest Ambassador Nikki Haley to the Heritage Foundation. When I think of Ambassador Haley the first word that comes to my mind is courage. She got her start in politics as a young businesswoman who recognized the need for fresh conservative leadership in South Carolina. Even though she'd never held elective office before, she beat the state's longest-serving legislator and became the first Indian American to serve in the South Carolina State House. She then served as the first female and first minority governor of South Carolina, as we say, you go girl, (laughs) where she fought for education reform and job creation, both which were inspirational successes. It should come as no surprise to anyone who knows her that she chose the perfect title for her autobiography, Can't is Not an Option. She is also the author of one of my favorite all-time quotes. She said, and I quote, she can do this, I cannot, I wear heels and it's not a fashion statement, it's ammunition. Her grit and her experience make her the ideal ambassador to the UN because of the extraordinary courage that that job requires. For example, Ambassador Haley stands for human rights and truth is a prime example of the courageous action for which this administration is becoming so well known. Now, one might think that something called the Human Rights Council is working to improve human rights. But we're talking about the UN here. (laughs) Over America's objections, the UN Council includes such human rights abusers as China, Cuba, and Venezuela. Nearly half of all the resolutions it has passed to condemn countries for human rights violations have been focused on, wait for it, Israel. And it has never passed a resolution condemning China, Cuba, Russia, Saudi Arabia, or Zimbabwe, despite their terrible human rights records. For all these reasons... And thanks to Ambassador Haley's leadership, America withdrew from the UN's deeply flawed Human Rights Council last month. (laughs) 
Also, I think it's worthy of note that uh, last month, one of the Council's human rights experts issued a report blasting the U.S. for extreme poverty. Throughout my life, I've experienced almost everything, most of the good and some of the bad that this country has to offer. So I personally was deeply offended that the UN would accuse our government of deliberately keeping our citizens in extreme poverty and pursuing policies deliberately designed to remove basic protections from the poorest. But fortunately, Ambassador Nikki Haley was once again leading the charge. She correctly called the UN report patently ridiculous and revealed what we all knew, that it was politically motivated. Because of her courage, her conviction, and her extraordinary service to our nation, it is my great pleasure to welcome a true champion for the United States of America, my friend, Ambassador Nikki Haley. So much, Kay, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation. It's great to be back, and I thank you so much for the work that happens in these halls. I've spent my entire public life using the power of my voice to push for action and trying to help others do the same. I learned early on that I was not good at sitting back and staying quiet. If something needs to be said and done to improve the lives of people, we have to take a stand, and that's what I've spent my life doing. For the past 18 months at the United Nations, I've been inspired to use the power of my voice by one of my predecessors. Jean Kirkpatrick once said that, quote, speech is action, an important action, unquote. She didn't seek out confrontation with her fellow delegates at the UN, but she didn't hesitate to speak her mind and stick to her guns when American values and interests were at stake. Many times that meant that Ambassador Kirkpatrick found herself nearly alone, sometimes completely alone, in the positions that she would take for the United States. After 18 months in this job, I can tell you I feel her pain. The United Nations was founded for a noble purpose, to promote peace and security based on justice equal rights, and the self-determination of people. But it has many member nations whose leaders completely reject that purpose. When that happens, many well-meaning countries adopt a position of neutrality in the hope of coming to an agreement with these nations. They effectively allow dictators and authoritarian regimes to control the agenda. Resolutions get watered down until they are meaningless or they become objectively anti-democratic. Moral clarity becomes a casualty of the need to placate tyrants, all in the name of building consensus. In such a situation, it is imperative for the United States to use the power of our voice to defend our values. 
That's as true today as it was during the Cold War, maybe even more so. We are a special nation with a special message for the world. We are a country founded on human dignity, on the revolutionary idea that all men are created equal with rights including, but not limited to, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you take this truth seriously, as Ambassador Kirkpatrick did, as I do, it is non-negotiable. You don't sell out to appease those who deny it, and it's not a political chit to be traded for something of greater value. If you take it seriously, you use your voice. You fight for it, even if that means you fight alone. The United States was instrumental in creating the United Nations Human Rights Commission precisely because we believe in the inherent dignity of all women and men. It was meant to be, in the words of its first chairman, Eleanor Roosevelt, quote, a place of conscience. When it has served this function, the Human Rights Council, as it is now known, has provided a voice for the voiceless. It has brought the injustice suffered, suffered by political prisoners to international attention. It has put a spotlight on crimes committed by Syria's Assad and the Kim dictatorship in North Korea. But these have been the exceptions, not the rule. More often, the Human Rights Council has provided cover, not condemnation, for the world's most inhumane regimes. It has been a bully pulpit for human rights violators. And the Human Rights Council has been not a place of conscience, but a place of politics. It has focused its attention unfairly and relentlessly on Israel. Meanwhile, it has ignored the misery inflicted by regimes in Venezuela, Cuba, Zimbabwe, and China. Judged by how far it has fallen short of its promise, the Human Rights Council is the United Nations' greatest failure. It has taken the idea of human dignity, the idea that's at the center of our national creed and the birthright of every human being, and it has reduced it to just another instrument of international politics. And that is a great tragedy. I don't come to this conclusion happily or lightly. The Obama administration decided to join the supposedly reformed Human Rights Council in 2009. Then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton vowed that the United States could improve the council by working from the inside. By the time I became the US ambassador, eight years later, it was clear that this strategy had failed. There are lots of problems with the Human Rights Council, but two stuck out for me when I came to the UN. The first was the Council's membership. When I arrived, and still today, its members included some of the worst human rights violators. The dictatorships of Cuba, China, and Venezuela all have seats on the Council. Not only was Venezuela a member but in 2015, the council invited its dictator, Nicolas Maduro, to speak to a special assembly. He got a standing ovation, which was not surprising given that 62% of 
of the Human Rights Council's members were not democracies. The other major sign that the United States presence had failed to improve the Council was the continuing existence of the notorious Agenda Item 7. This is the permanent part of the Human Rights Council agenda that is devoted exclusively to Israel. No other country, not Iran, not Syria, not North Korea, has an agenda item devoted solely to it. Agenda item seven is not directed at anything Israel does. It is directed at the very existence of Israel. It is a blazing red siren signaling the Human Rights Council's political corruption and moral bankruptcy. For these reasons and others, there were voices in Congress and elsewhere encouraging the Trump administration to withdraw from the Human Rights Council immediately when we took office. We could have easily done that. But instead, we made, we made a good faith effort to see if we could fix the Council's problems. We engaged in a public campaign. President Trump called for changes to the Council in his speech before the UN General Assembly last fall. And we also worked relentlessly behind the scenes. We spent the year making the case for reform, meeting with more than 125 member states and circulating drafts of reform resolutions. As the year progressed, our case for reform only grew stronger. In October, the Democratic Republic of Congo was elected to a seat on the council. The Congo is the setting for atrocities that shock the most hardened international aid workers. They were discovering mass graves in the Congo, even as the General Assembly approved its bid to the Human Rights Council. In December and into this year, the Iranian people took to the streets in peaceful protest against their horrendous regime. The government responded with beatings, arrests, and killings. The Human Rights Council was silent. And throughout the year, Venezuela descended further and further into misery and dictatorship. But the Council didn't address the massive abuses in Venezuela for the reason I'm sure you've guessed by now. Venezuela sits on the Human Rights Council. In the end, the United States couldn't convince enough countries to stand up and declare that the Human Rights Council was no longer worthy of its name. Why this happened is telling. The first and most obvious reason is that authoritarian regimes are happy with the status quo. Many seek membership to protect their own and their allies' human rights records from scrutiny. Russia, China, Cuba, and Egypt, they all benefit from making a mockery of the Human Rights Council. So it's no surprise that they openly resisted our efforts to reform it. What was more baffling was the resistance we received from groups and countries that should know better from those who believe in human rights and human dignity. First, there were the non-governmental institutions, or NGOs, the private groups that usually do good work on behalf of human rights. They agreed with the need of, to keep human rights violators off of the Council. 
So you can imagine our surprise when they came out publicly against our reforms, telling other countries to vote against us. Groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch sided with Russia and China on a critical human rights issue. And I'll let you be the judge of their reasoning. The NGOs were afraid that opening up the Human Rights Council to changes would result in hostile amendments in the General Assembly that would make the Council even worse. Think about that for a second. Their view is that a bad situation can't be improved because it could get worse. This is yet another example of the world's worst human rights regimes calling the shots at the United Nations. These NGOs' unwillingness to challenge the status quo also comes from their institutional comforts. They have big staffs and lots of relationships with the UN bureaucracy. Change is threatening to them. If we approached everything with their attitude, nothing would ever improve and complacency would rule the day. Even more troubling was the pro-human rights countries that refused to speak up. These are countries that, in quiet, off-the-record conversations, share our embarrassment and concern with the actions and inactions of the Council. They told us in confidence that they, too, are disgusted with countries like Cuba and Venezuela, Saudi Arabia and the Congo serving on the Council, as well as the constant attacks on Israel. We gave them opportunity after opportunity, but after months of agreeing with us on all of the flaws of the Human Rights Council, they would not take a stand unless it was behind closed doors and out of public view. These countries share our belief in the inherent dignity of every human being, and yet they lack the courage to make a difference. They have a voice. They just refuse to use it. On June 19th, Secretary Pompeo and I made an announcement that the United States was withdrawing from the Human Rights Council. Many of our friends urged us to stay for the sake of the institution. The United States, they said, provided the last shred of credibility the Council had. <laughs> but that was precisely why we withdrew. The right to speak freely, to associate and worship freely, to determine your own future, to be equal before the law, these are sacred rights. We take these rights seriously, too seriously to allow them to be cheapened by an institution, especially one that calls itself the Human Rights Council. No one should make the mistake of equating membership in the Human Rights Council with the support for human rights. To this day, the United States does more for human rights both inside the UN and around the world than any other country. And we will continue to do that. We just won't do it inside a council that consistently fails the cause of human rights. We have already begun to make the case for human rights and that it should be addressed in the UN Security Council in New York. Last year, during the U.S. presidency, 
we held the first ever Security Council session dedicated to the connection between human rights and peace and security. The fighting and instability that has spilled over the borders of countries like Syria and Burma began with extreme or massive violations of human rights of the people of those countries. Human rights violators deserve our condemnation on their own terms, but they also often lead to conflicts which threaten the peace of an entire region. When we act to protect human rights, we act to prevent conflict. Just this month, we successfully fought back Russian and Chinese efforts to drastically reduce the number of UN peacekeepers dedicated to human rights protection and promotion. And the United States has taken the initiative to do what the Human Rights Council refused to do. Despite protests orchestrated by the Venezuelan government, the United States organized an event on Venezuela outside the Human Rights Council in Geneva. This January, we had a Security Council session on human rights violations of the Iranian regime. And just last week, the United States led a historic effort in the Security Council to impose an arms embargo and sanctions on the combatants in South Sudan, which has been the scene of enormous suffering and human rights abuses in the country's short life. And as I've said before, our withdrawal from the Human Rights Council does not mean that we give up our fight for reform. On the contrary, any country willing to work with us to reshape the Council need only ask. Fixing the institutional flaws of the Human Rights Council was, is, and will remain one of the biggest priorities at the UN. I have traveled to refugee camps in Ethiopia, Congo, Turkey, and Jordan. I have met with mothers that have been scarred by trauma. I have seen battered, aimless children lost to ignorance and extremism. Their memories will always haunt me. As long as we have a voice, we must use it to advocate for these mothers and children. I will use my voice not just because I'm a mother, not just because I'm an ambassador, but because I'm an American. And America can no more abandon the cause of human rights than abandon itself. It is who we are. It is who we're proud to be. And it's who we will always be. Thank you and God bless you. Wow, that was quite a speech. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name's Kim Holmes. I'm the Executive Vice President at the Heritage Foundation, and, and I am uh, uh, also served for a while in uh, the State Department as the Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizations uh, under President George W. Bush, where I had uh, the, the, I wouldn't say the pleasure, but certainly the honor 
uh, to deal with some of the uh, the issues in the United Nations that uh, Kevin Moley and others of my friends at the State Department deal with. Uh, thank you very much for coming here today. Uh, as uh, Ambassador Haley said, uh, we've been wrestling with this issue of what to do with the human rights uh, before the Commission and now the Council uh, for many years. Uh, I was, uh, when I was at State, I engaged with it at the Commission, saw the same problems that she uh, highlighted here today, and uh, I just want to say that I personally could not be happier uh, with the decision that she's made. The next uh, part of our program here is to do a deep dive, to go into uh, some of the issues and questions that were raised by Ambassador Haley's speech and by the decision. And uh, what better uh, opportunity could we have than to have two of the people that were involved in the State Department with making the decision? I'll ask uh, Kevin Moley and Mike Kozak, uh, could you come on up here to the, uh, to the panel? Uh, just to introduce them, uh, this Kevin Moley is uh, currently the Assistant Secretary of State uh, for the Bureau of International Organization Affairs. Uh, prior to uh, that position, uh, he was a permanent representative of the United States to the Office of the United Nations in Geneva uh, when I was Assistant Secretary, and so he was all on the other end of my instructions, and I would visit him. He had a, a wonderful house back in those days. Apparently, the United States has sold it. Uh, is, that, is that true? Yeah, okay. Well, we made some money off of it. Yeah, we run it. He was, uh, prior to that, he was Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services in 1992 and 93, and uh, he was Assistant Secretary for Management and Budget at the Department of Health and Human Services in 89 to 92. But I think something he's probably most proud of, he was uh, in the Marine Corps, uh, receiving a Purple Heart and the Navy Commendation Medal with Combat and Valor. Thank you for your service, Kevin. Also, Mike uh, Kozak is with us. He is, uh, I am told that his official title is a senior advisor and senior bureau official, uh, but he does operate, uh, if I'm not mistaken, as the acting assistant secretary for uh, democracy, human rights, and labor. He's a career a senior executive uh, service at the uh, in the Department of State. Uh, when I was, uh, right after I uh, left uh, the State Department, uh, he was at the State Department when I was there in DRL. Uh, he went over to the uh, NSC, become Senior Director for the National Security Council staff from 2005 to 2009, where he dealt with, uh, where he was responsible for, for the whole portfolio of democracy, human rights, and international organizations. And uh, prior to that, he was Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, and three bureaus, as a matter of fact, uh, DRL, Inter-American Affairs, and also as a legal advisor. See, he is a longtime veteran uh, of the State Department, been there for many years. So we've got a lot of brain power here. We've got a lot of, uh, a lot of resources, a lot of information. And uh, I'm going to ask Mike if you want to come up and say a few words to get us started, and then we'll have some Q&A at the end. Thank you, Kim, for the nice introduction, and what a great speech from uh, from Ambassador Haley. I thought I would uh, follow on to that and explain a little bit. She made the very strong point that getting out of the Human Rights Council does not mean get out, getting out of the human rights business, and thought I would talk a little bit about what the administration is doing on that front and what we have in mind to do, and uh, then we can open it up to get gets uh, some suggestions. 
Now, I think uh, one of the interesting things about the Human Rights Commission, as she alluded to, is there's pretty much agreement amongst democratic uh, countries that societies that respect human rights are stable, secure, and make better allies. Uh, and when you strengthen democratic institutions and workers' rights, this promotes economic development and trade, but it also levels the playing field for U.S. business if others start treating their workers uh, correctly. So, and the final thing that promotion of democracy does is takes away, if by giving people a, a peaceful way of redressing grievances, it takes away a recruiting tool that terrorists use. So it's for these reasons that President Trump's national security strategy is very clear on this topic. The national security uh, strategy states that liberty, free enterprise, equal justice under the law, and the dignity of every human life are central to who we are as a people. It also makes clear that a commitment to human rights is essential to advance U.S. influence abroad. And it asserts that respect for human rights produces peace, stability, prosperity, making it integral to U.S. Uh, national security. Now, the mission of our Bureau is, in promoting human rights, uh, has never been dependent uh, upon the United Nations. The Bureau does its part by using an array of diplomatic tools that are available to us. These include bilateral and multinational, multi-stakeholder, multilateral diplomacy, programming, public diplomacy, visa restrictions, economic sanctions, and a whole panoply of activities that uh, that we and our colleagues in the department and in the in the administration engage in so again by disengaging from one component of the UN that does not mean we're disengaging from this whole array of tools that that uh, have proven effective in advancing our interest in uh, human rights so our policy going forward will to be to continue to call out governments that violate human rights. You don't depend on doing that only in the UN uh, Human Rights Council. I think we've seen a great demonstration from Ambassador Haley that you can use other parts of the UN to do that. You can use public diplomacy. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we do is produce the annual Human Rights Report, which uh, tries to document in a very precise way uh, the behavior of other countries. Now, this uh, last year, we sharpened the report. We did some real surgery on it. It had been, gotten to be a little bit fuzzy uh, in the executive summary where every country kind of sounded the same because we were trying to have the same number of problems for every country. And we said, no, let's stop that and focus in one paragraph on the most egregious types of human rights violations. So now you can look and compare that paragraph across different countries and say, Okay, does this country engage in extrajudicial killing, torture, government censorship, coerced abortion and involuntary sterilization? Does it encourage domestic violence or not? And you start to see real contrast between countries when you focus in on those core, uh, most egregious forms of human rights violations. Now, the, the other information that's always been there is still there. When you go back in the bowels of the of that very long 7,000-word-plus report. But if you look at that one little paragraph in each country, you can get a pretty good idea of what, who you're dealing with. Um, administration has also used uh, diplomacy, sanctions, and other tools to isolate states and leaders who threaten our interests and whose actions run contrary to our values. In Syria, when the Assad regime committed mass murder, the president struck at the regime's ability to deliver chemical weapons. That's a very concrete way of dealing with a human rights problem. 
and an effective one. On Iran, the president stood strongly with brave protesters and expects support for the fundamental uh, freedoms they deserve. In Burma, we've made clear that the military forces who committed ethnic cleansing in Rakhine State, uh, that it was the military forces that did that, and we have sanctioned the general who overseen uh, that operation. And we will soon be finalizing a very rigorous report documenting the inhuman treatment uh, meted out by government forces there, and I think you'll see some further action following on to that. In Cambodia, we suspended and curtailed the U.S. assistance in response to recent setbacks in democracy, and we imposed visa and or economic sanctions on those responsible for those setbacks. We've aggressively used a variety of sanctions tools to bring about behavioral change. As of June 15, we had sanctioned 17 serious uh, human rights abusers and corrupt actors and 56 entities under the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act. Now, these included persons or entities from China, Burma, Russia, Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, Uzbekistan, and Nicaragua. Nicaragua being in response to very recent events. We've been able to move out smartly on that. And we continue under other sanctions authorities to uh, uh, get at other human rights abusers in places like Iran, Syria, Russia, Venezuela, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. We even sanctioned the brutal head of the Chechen Republic, uh, Kadyrov, and one of his chief henchmen. So these are concrete steps that we've been taking to try to uh, hold people accountable for and deter uh, human rights violations. We also uh, continue to impose sanctions available under the International Religious Freedom Act against those countries as designated as countries of particular concern because of gross abuses of human rights uh, based on uh, religious freedom grounds. And for the first time, Pakistan was placed on a special watch list for religious freedom abuses. We've cut off uh, or restricted assistance to six countries under the Child Soldiers Prevention Act of uh, 2017. So these are all the, the punitive measures. On the other side of the equation, uh, DRL Bureau and our colleagues in uh, USAID uh, support uh, projects that partner with civil society and democracy activists around the world who are pressing for change in their own countries. Now, our bureau is primarily responsible for those places where there is no USAID mission and often no U.S. embassy. Uh, so we operate in places where we aren't even present, but we're, we're able to do it, and I think do, have done it pretty effectively. Um, and then on the other side, uh, when we have a country that has a sudden uh, breakthrough in democracy or an opportunity to advance democracy, we try to move in quickly and help the, the people who are trying to do that. One of my colleagues is out, uh, as we speak, in Ethiopia, where there's suddenly, who knew it, but they had a total change in the attitude of the government, and now they're trying, they said they want to model their, their society going forward on our, on our values, and they're looking for ways to do that and looking for assistance. We've seen, I had met with our ambassador to Malaysia yesterday, and she was telling me similar opportunity there. We've got uh, a real chance with Uzbekistan, too. So these were places that had bad, bad human rights problems. They're not fixed yet, but at least you've got people now who want to make a change, and they're looking at us to help them, and that's our mission. Now, our guidance from our leadership has been very clear, as Ambassador Haley said, that withdrawing from participation in the Human Rights Council does not mean we are to withdraw from promoting human rights. And to the contrary, our 
instructions are that we need to do all we can to bring about the reforms that would allow us to uh, that would make the Human Rights Council a, a useful tool and a legitimate tool in our toolkit. But in the meantime, we are going forward with, as I mentioned, supporting uh, the uh, uh, civil society. Uh, we're working with, in partnership with civil society, with private sector, with faith-based organizations. So we do these through a whole network and try to build that, uh, that global networking and, and push for uh, democracy. In multilateral institutions, uh, we're trying to use other multilateral institutions to emphasize human rights. And we've done it for years, but I think we're going to turn up the volume a little bit. Uh, one of our favorites is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe which devotes a, a session every uh, fall to human rights, the Human Dimension Meeting. Um, the Organization of American States uh, and other bodies, now uh, we're upping our game in those institutions. The OAS, for example, has operated for years, even though its charter says it's a voting organization, for years everybody uh, decided that it should be based only on consensus, the dreaded consensus virus that uh, Ambassador Haley mentioned. And so we, it never was able to do anything on human rights because the people who were violating human rights were members and would withhold themselves from consensus and nothing would happen. But uh, that is changing. Under the leadership of our new perm rep uh, at the OAS, Carlos Trujillo, we're successfully pressing for decisive actions on Venezuela and Nicaraguan uh, human rights violations. And we're calling votes and we're telling people to choose upsides and votes and they're doing so. Um, so we're also uh, going to be seeing some more action in that front. There are other institutions, though, that we can and, and will use. Uh, the Community of Democracies is a good platform. It's a bunch of like-minded, uh, at least uh, on the values of democracy, sometimes not uh, like-minded on what we should do about particular issues, but it's a forum where we can raise these issues and act. We also participate in the Open Government Partnership, which on corruption issues, which tend to go hand-in-hand hand with uh, human rights violations, um, we're able to get people focused on that and try to get uh, uh, action. Uh, in Sri Lanka, for example, we're through bilateral uh, assistance, we're supporting the government's national action plan to combat corruption. Um, in... Uh, Another piece that we use is uh, we have uh, the leadership in the State Department of combating uh, uh, threats to Internet freedom. And we do this, we, we have sort of a diplomatic side that's called the Freedom Online Coalition, but we also have a programmatic side where we finance research and development on how you get around the blocking tools that some of these really bad governments use to keep their people from being able to uh, access uh, the Internet without censorship. And as a consequence of that, we have literally tens of millions of people now successfully using those tools. But it's a constant, it's a cat and mouse game. The bad guys come up with uh, uh, countermeasures to what we've figured out, so we're always trying to think ahead of them and have new new apps that we can put out there in the world. Uh, on the, uh, We're also trying to harness uh, the uh, business uh, sectors across the world. So we have like the guiding principles on business and human rights, and there are OECD guidelines, voluntary principles, and human rights initiative. These are all different coalitions of multinational enterprises, and you, 
they, they get together and try to set some standards for businesses and how they're going to behave on human rights. The great advantage of this is what we're trying to do is get other countries to bring their business conduct up to the level of ours. Uh, our businesses are otherwise kind of disadvantaged if they're being, you know, good uh, corporate citizens and somebody else is, uh, you know, using uh, forced labor or something like that. It, it's a disadvantage for them. So it's it's both doing good, but it also helps uh, our, our uh, businesses do well. Um, Finally, we, as Ambassador Haley mentioned, uh, you know, there are other parts of the UN. Third Committee is uh, a place where we have, for years, run uh, strong human rights resolutions. And sometimes it's been a toss-up, whether it was, you know, more productive to run it in the Third Committee or in the Human Rights Council. And you, you look at voting patterns and everything else. Well, now that, that question is resolved. <laughs> It'll be Third Committee and whenever that question rises. Um, Security Council, as she mentioned, uh, I think that's really an important uh, uh, initiative that uh, the ambassador's taken there because there's been this argument for years that the Security Council was about threats to peace and security. And what we're saying is human rights abuse is a threat to peace and security, as we've seen over and over and over again. You need to deal with it be before it becomes a kinetic threat. Um, <coughs> We also remain active in you know, the General Assembly and ECOSOC and other parts of it. We'll maintain our partnership with the uh, Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights. Uh, that's a body that uh, pre-exists the Human Rights Council. Um, and you know, if we, if we can uh, work with them to make progress on some of these things, we'll, we'll do that. But that's where we are in terms of our global promotion uh, of human rights. The stuff we do bilaterally, the stuff we do multilaterally, uh, the stuff we can do through sanctions and, and other uh, forms of, uh, of concrete pressure. But I would observe in this, just to close, that you know we've tried being in or out of the Human Rights Council has not fixed the Human Rights Council. We've, I've, as Kim mentioned, we've, we've, we've both, all three of us have been involved in both directions on that. So we need to do, some, if we're going to bring about change, we need to think of something more that we can do to try to, to change attitudes and to get the, the institutional changes we need. So from that standpoint, we would be very, very interested in hearing from all of you if you've got ideas and suggestions that we can take back and try to formulate into our policy. But with that, we... Thank you. by Ambassador Haley and uh, very telling remarks at the working level on what we're actually doing to promote human rights by Mike, uh, who I've worked with for more years than I care to, <laughs> to as, as well as with Kim. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's telling that when the atmosphere in the forum designated by the United Nations becomes so toxic to the cause of human rights that it is uh, there to promote, by principle, it requires the United States of America to leave that forum. Uh, we cannot uh, tolerate uh, being in a place so toxic to the cause that it allegedly promotes. Um, it it uh, uh, has been said at times that, for instance, Russia and China will fill the vacuum, which should tell you everything about why we should not be <laughs> in that forum. <clears throat> Further, I'd like to say that 
Uh, we look forward to hearing from you, not only your questions as to how we are going to pursue uh, human rights and enhance the values we all believe in, but to ask you to provide us information, either here today or over time, for the forum and platforms you believe we should be using to enhance the role of human rights. After all, as Ambassador Haley so eloquently put it, the United States of America is human rights. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, that's who we are and will always be. And we cannot tolerate being put in a position of adding credibility to an organization that denigrates the values we hold so dear. So, Kim, I look forward, uh, as Mike does, and I know you do too, to hear questions uh, from the audience as how we go forward and what forum and platforms we can use to enhance human rights and our values around the world. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Um, I'd like to take the, the liberty, the chairman's liberty, to ask a, a, the first question, if I could. Uh, all three of us were at the State Department. Uh, I believe, Mike, you were principal deputy at DRL, and you were in Geneva, and I was in I.O., when uh, this question of the Libya's imminent election, Libya's imminent election to the chair of the Human Rights Commission came up. And I had only been on the job uh, a very short period of time. Uh, I, perhaps it was because I was new and I didn't know any better. I thought, this is probably, this doesn't sound like a very good idea. Uh, and uh, we actually called for a vote, uh, which, again, not the dreaded consensus, but we actually called it for a vote. We lost the vote. Uh, but I remember at the time how shocked uh, some of our allies and friends were, including NGOs, by the way, uh, that he would be so audacious as to actually call for a vote on whether or not Libya should be a chairman of the Human Rights Commission. And this was at a time when Libya was uh, under Muammar Gaddafi and was extremely, uh, had a bad record on human rights. It just really raises a bigger question, really. Um, We've been here before, as you said. We've been in. We've been out. We've tried everything. We've tried reforms. Um, and yet the same mistakes were being made over and over again. It, it raises, I think, a more existential question. Can the United Nations, the way it's currently constructed, be a champion of human rights? I mean, the, human the United Nations is a political organization. It's an organization of nation states. And it reflects the official policies of the nations that go into the General Assembly. And most of those nations uh, are not, uh, many of those nations are not democratic. They don't share our values. And yet there is an underlying assumption that just because you happen to be a nation and have representation in the General Assembly, that because of the underlying ideal of the UN uh, and also the idea that, uh, that somehow you have to have consensus among all the nations, that this is a competing principle or idea, if you will, with a whole notion of human rights, which is basically based in, uh, in a very different conception of what is right and what is wrong. So I just, could you just give me your views on, uh, are we expecting too much from the UN? Well, I, uh, the United Nations, 193 countries, uh, organized uh, along regional geopolitical lines, is much like uh, when we were children. Uh, who were our friends? They were our neighbors. Uh, as we became older, went on to school, uh, became, uh, had jobs, we started associating ourselves not with those who necessarily lived right around the corner, but with those who were like-minded, who shared our values, shared our thoughts, 
The United Nations is still like a, ch a childhood neighborhood. The Africans organized, put forward a number of candidates to be on the Human Rights Council, Latin America, and they take turns, and they think that, you know, that's the right way to go. We need to move beyond that. We need to associate ourselves with those countries and those individuals who share our values, share our, our values with respect to human rights in particular. And um, the UN is not a particularly uh, well-designed forum uh, for human rights activity uh, along the lines that I think we would like. But Michael, I... Yeah, well, I would uh, agree with that and say that they actually... Though to answer Kim's question, whether the UN is capable of it, it's whether the member states, and more particularly the member states that do share our values, if if they can step up to the plate and make it. Like one of the things that happened with the 2005 uh, reform of the Commission and make the Council, it they used to adopt, uh, you know, by acclaim the the slates that were put forward by regional groups, uh, the, the tribes of uh, regional groups and or groups of, of kids that. Uh, Kevin referred to. But it was that was changed to say, okay, now it's going to be a secret vote, and you have to get an absolute majority of the membership of the General Assembly. That should theoretically make it possible if like-minded democratic states voted against a bad human rights violator that's put forward by a regional group to, to block that. But the answer you get back from many of our friends and, and people who sympathize with our objectives on this is, Oh, but if we did that and blocked uh, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, then the Africa group would be one member down, and they, they're entitled to a certain quota. And, you know, my response is, well, maybe they'd think twice the next time about picking somebody with an awful human rights record. But that, we haven't been able to even break that syndrome. It's, I'm, I, our, our enemies and foes are going to behave the way they behave, but it's how do you get your friends to start standing up and saying, no, let's just, if we have the power to vote against them, vote against them so that they don't pass by a claim each time. All right, now we'll take some questions from, uh, from the audience. If uh, we have uh, a microphone on both sides, yeah, both sides. So if you could uh, stand up or just identify yourself and ask a question. Anybody have a question? Terry. I'm, I'm Terry Miller. I'm with the Heritage Foundation now, and uh, before that I was a, a U.S. diplomat uh, at the United Nations and other places. Um, my question is, um, Ambassador Haley and, and all of our distinguished panelists here have talked a lot about uh, the fundamental human rights that we hold dear in the United States, rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, assembly, uh, what are known as the civil and political rights. But in the United Nations machinery, a huge portion of that um, is devoted to another group of issues that they call rights, but we wouldn't necessarily call rights here in the United, United States. Uh, welfare issues like the right to food, right to housing, right to development, uh, uh, so on and so forth, things that involve resource transfers. And even countries that might be our friends, such as the countries of, of Western Europe on the civil and political rights, 
are equally dedicated to this other group of issues uh, where the United States gets isolated all the time. And so I'm just wondering, um, is that a battle that we're still fighting at the UN? And if it is, um, is it possible that we could separate the conception of these two kinds of rights and perhaps have a, an organization that would focus more specifically on those about which we care so deeply? And our fellow uh, colleagues, uh we're fighting that battle just today at the United Nations. So that, that battle continues. And the rights uh, we're referring to, of course, are those rights uh, that require uh, someone else to pay for. And we all know who that someone else is, the United <laughs> States of America. Uh, the world is often a, a free rider in terms of what they demand of us without our getting the appropriate quid pro quo, which would be the values that we believe in. So this is an ongoing battle, and as I said, it was going on as recently, well, probably as we speak, uh, in, in ECOSOC, the Economic and Social Council in, 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 um, in New York today. Yeah, I would just observe it. It's, it's not only an ongoing issue, but it's also one that the, the people who vi violate civil and political rights love economic, social, and cultural rights because they'll say, well, I mean, the Cubans being a great example, we have to maintain our dictatorial system and crush out all civil and political rights because it's the only way we can redistribute the wealth to people and meet all these other things. So it, it's not only that it sort of takes up airtime that could otherwise be devoted to this, but it becomes the it becomes a pretext for violating uh, civil and political rights. And I, you know, we we've will always be struggling with that. I'm afraid. Ma'am. Uh, eight years on the, on the Human Rights uh, Committee in Geneva. Sometimes boring, sometimes exciting, many times boring. Uh, but one, one of the real problems we felt in Geneva was it was almost impossible to get any decent press coverage because Geneva's kind of a far away and the wench is dead redoubt. Uh, so there's no really first-class press coverage in much of what we did. Secondly, uh, just the, the ways in which, even with a good set of concluding observations from the Human Rights Committee, which is different from the Council, uh, it's almost impossible to get publicity for them, even if you shop them to journalists. And what I've noticed over the years is that, indeed, very f I'm sure they're marvelous people, but the, the press corps in Geneva is not to write home about. So if there was some way to commandeer national television or something to actually get some salience for the, uh, the things that aren't being done, which are the ones that seem inconspicuous because they're not there. She's invited you to be TV stars, you guys. Uh, you know? <laughs> uh, Ruth, uh, thank you for the question. And in fact, you're absolutely right. Their, their press corps in Geneva is not what it is in New York. And I think that goes exactly to the point that Ambassador Haley was making that by taking this up in the General Assembly, as an example, uh, we can point out more broadly the hypocrisy uh, that often reigns supreme in the United Nations forums, not just on human rights, but, but in other areas as well. I disagree with that. We have time for one more question. Any takers? Uh -huh. right. Go ahead. Can you wait for the mic? Yeah. One second. Susie Tiebler. Um, this is something that's getting thrown in our face all the time by people in this country. 
they spread the idea of the way you have all talked about human rights <clears throat> to be uh, attacking your next door neighbor who doesn't agree with you politically or uh, women attacking men and it can be a weapon uh, to destroy somebody's reputation and vice versa. So <laughs> I feel like human rights has been expanded into anybody disagreeing with me. Huh. And um, I wonder how we can pull back from that. That's a, uh, this, not a question. Exactly. No, it's a, but it's a good observation and one that uh, we've been struggling with, including with a lot of our European allies, that they keep developing these speech codes, basically, to say, well, anything that is going to make somebody feel uncomfortable, the state should ban it. And that's exactly contrary to our conception of freedom of expression and what the freedom of expression is, is, is defined in the, uh, in the treaties that we all are party to. So this is one reason I mentioned that we would refocus the Human Rights Report. We're trying to get it back to what are the things that are indisputably human rights violations. You know, taking somebody out in back of the police station and shooting them in the back of the head without a trial is a human rights violation. You know, burning somebody with, with cigarettes or, you know, beating them until they confess to something is a violation. So we're trying to say those are the, those are the ones we're concerned about. Now, you may be able to say, well, they're, they're you know, the more esoteric. Uh, we've gotten very much into sort of societal attitudes and discrimination, and we're saying, no, these are the things governments are responsible for. So if if people are getting beaten up, is the government doing something to stop that, or is it encouraging it? Uh, one of the great... Uh, examples that I found and we used in the Human Rights Report was that Russia had an uptick in uh, reports of domestic violence and their government's response was to introduce in the state Duma a piece of legislation that decriminalized spouse abuse and uh, and the lady who introduced it on behalf of the Putin party said uh, it is better that our women be beaten than that our men be humiliated by their behavior and they decriminalized it, so now you, you know, it's like getting a, a parking ticket or something if you get caught beating the daylights out of somebody. So that's the kind of stuff I think we want to highlight and say that's a human rights abuse. You know, and, and it's not making somebody feel uncomfortable because you don't agree with them. Uh, but it's going to take some doing because there's a real trend the other direction now of protecting everybody from offensive speech, and that's so contrary to freedom of expression that it's it, it really is a problem and if i might uh, just i know we're closing uh, kim but i just want to say how proud and privileged i am to work with mike and ambassador haley in particular uh, the real champion of human rights is the person who is strong enough to speak out and say we are not going to go, go along to get along and that is ambassador nikki haley so i think we all owe her a debt of gratitude for the position she's taken so thank you very much. We'll give you the final word. Thank you for coming.